Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association. Welcome to Volume 41, Number 4 of Grapevine, recorded on the 29th of January 2021. Hi, I'm Graham, your presenter, and joining me this week is Margaret, this week's newsreader, who also gives us a flashback to a Mercury from October 1956. And Andy also joins us with another of his weird Norfolk tales. The headlines this week include, as is inevitable, more Covid news, the revival of the flood barrier idea for the rivers, and the mystery of murals popping up around the town is solved. As usual though, the first part of the news, and just before Margaret takes over, there are two last-minute items which appeared after Margaret had finished her recording. Our hospital gives 11,000 vaccinations as COVID admissions keep rising. The James Paget University Hospital has delivered more than 11,000 vaccinations since December, but warns there are stark challenges ahead as COVID admissions continue to surge. At a JPH Board of Directors meeting on January the 28th, Chief Executive Anna Hills revealed COVID-19 inpatient numbers are now double those of April, with December to January recording a massive increase. On the plus side, she explained the vaccine rollout was going a long way in protecting the community, with 90% of the JPH workforce now vaccinated. But uncertainties about infection control within the hospital remain a sticking point. Paul Morris, Director of Nursing, said an important method of keeping infection numbers down was reducing the amount of patient transfers. He said, We know that the number of times patients are moved is not great for their experience or from an infection control point of view. It's not good to have patients moving around the facility, but they are normally moved to meet clinical demand or meet the needs of a ward as a whole. He added that staffing levels were having a direct impact on patient care, with many members off due to sickness or shielding. Our normal nurse-to-patient ratio is 1 to 8, but has been getting to 1 to 10, 12 or even 14, he said. Never before have our staff had to work in such difficult circumstances, but at all times they strive to provide the highest quality care. Workforce lead Graham Armitage said that nine JPH nurses had been sent to help the Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital deal with the surge there. He reflected that none of us could have known April was just the warm-up act. Karen Hensard Director of Governance then put forward the main health and safety issues the Trust needed to work on, stressing that reducing delays in responding to complaints was paramount. Other concerns she raised were the higher-than-expected numbers of external serious incidents and inpatient falls with harm. Her report, presented to directors, revealed that there had been 25 harmful falls among inpatients in December, as well as 19 serious incidents. These, she said, related mainly to infection control breaches and patients waiting longer than 12 hours to be seen at A&E. The report said that 33 patients in total waited longer than 12 hours in the emergency department in December and that there were 727 ambulance handover delays of 30 minutes or more. Meanwhile, the amount of people starting treatment within 18 weeks of referral was running at 63.81% at the end of December, down from the target of 92%. In terms of tackling the backlog in elective and cancer operations, Chief Operating Officer Joanne Segersby said... The huge strides had been made in December before a return to national lockdown meant the focus once again moved to coronavirus. 
She did, however, say that no harm had been reported by patients facing operation delays and that urgent cancer treatments were still going ahead. A further point raised by Ms Segersby related to the number of patients still in the hospital who didn't need to be. We need to improve the flow of patients out of the hospital, she said. We now have two facilities for COVID-positive patients to be discharged to, one in Norfolk and one in Suffolk. In the autumn, we had 100 patients ready for discharge, which means around a quarter of our total patients could have continued their care elsewhere. Now that figure is down to 60 to 70. She explained that social care settings were facing the same issues as hospitals and that they had only a finite number of beds for discharged hospital patients. On top of this, Ms Segersby added that the demands of patients change a lot, which means the number of people eligible for discharge fluctuates. Yesterday, for example, 50% of our a and &E attendees came by ambulance, she said. Naturally, their stay with the hospital will be longer. And news that there are two rapid COVID testing sites for key workers open, with more to follow. Key workers in two Norfolk towns are now being given rapid coronavirus tests to spot people who have COVID-19 but do not have symptoms. And Norfolk County Council bosses say that the lateral flow testing currently being done in Kingsland and Great Yarmouth will be rolled out to other parts of the county within the next two months. About 250 people were tested at the Kings Lynn site last week, while the Yarmouth site launched on Wednesday, January the 27th. Dr Louise Smith, Norfolk's Director of Public Health, said, Our ambition is to have a number of these sites somewhere between five and eight, so that there is one local to you in each area. We will be bringing these on stream in the coming weeks. The tests can give a result within 30 minutes, although they're not as reliable as laboratory-analysed PCR tests. The rollout follows a successful trial in Kings Lynn in the run-up to Christmas. The council says it will be contacting organisations and employers who would be eligible to get workers tested to explain how to get involved. A council spokeswoman said, We can confirm that we are working with a number of partners to ensure that rapid testing for people without COVID-19 symptoms will soon be available in various settings across the county. While these tests don't pick up on all cases, they can help us identify more cases than would otherwise have been found. The Council stressed the rapid tests are separate from national coronavirus testing for those with symptoms and that anyone with symptoms should still book a free NHS test using the gov.uk website or by calling 119. They should immediately self-isolate and not seek to use the system-free testing programmes. OK, over now to Margaret. Hello everybody, I'm Margaret and I'm bringing you this week's news as well as meandering through the Mercury of October 1956. Well, we've nearly seen the last of January so spring must be getting closer and the mornings are lighter and the afternoons lighter as well. The highlight of my week has been getting the jab, hooray! I went to central surgery at the appointed time of 8.48, joined a small group of other 70-plus-year-old pensioners and was in and out in just over five minutes. And I have to say my thanks go to the efficiency and friendliness of all the staff. So if you haven't had your jab yet, I can promise you there's nothing to worry about. I felt a mixture of excitement and relief. So there's light at the end of the tunnel. So, right, I've brushed my hair, put my lipstick on, and if you're sitting comfortably, I'll begin with the latest news.
new wave of beach huts snapped up in Galston. Ten more beach huts have been installed along Galston's lower prom amid a surge in demand. All ten have been sold on either a 10 or a 20 year lease, generating up to £19,800 each for Great Yarmouth Borough Council, just as income has dipped from sources like car parking due to the pandemic. It brings the total number along the stretch to 30, 19 of which are sold, 10 are for annual hire and one is available for weekly or monthly hire. Carl Smith, council leader, said he was delighted the beach huts were finding their feet after a slow start. He said last year saw a surge in interest, fuelled by hot weather and the staycation summer, with most people's holiday wings clipped by the pandemic and preventing them from flying off abroad. Some of the buyers were people who had hired them last summer and experienced for themselves the joy of beach hut life converting their passion into something more permanent, he said. Last year they were boosted by the staycation summer, he said, and this year could well be the same. We put 10 down in the first lockdown and they proved to be popular and we will look at demand and put another 10 down there. It takes people to be actually in them, then it springboards from there. Any revenue that comes into the council is welcome in these times. They were slow to start with, but are now becoming popular. The council gave itself planning permission for 70 huts. And despite initial reports of queues to buy those issued under the first phase, it only turned out a handful of sales were completed. However, all 10 available for annual high up to March the 31st this year were sold out. Weekly hire rates range from £42 to £157.50 in July and August. Monthly rates range from £144 to £472.50. The beach huts are not available to hire during lockdown. The first six beach huts were put in place in May 2019. A Borough Council spokesman said it had already received many inquiries for 2021-2022. Shock as cannabis factory found in Quiet Broads Village. A cannabis factory has been uncovered in one of the Norfolk Broads most scenic villages. Police have confirmed they were called to Croft Hill in Stokesby on Friday, January the 22nd, shortly before 3pm, following reports a cannabis factory had been discovered in a derelict property. Officers attended and discovered five rooms being used to grow 74 cannabis plants and 35 seedlings. Stuart Ward, chairman of Stokesby with Herringby Parish Council, said news of the discovery was a real surprise and a bit of a shock in a quiet backwater where no one would expect to be. He said Croft Hill was an area comprising mainly local authority homes, some of which were now in private ownership. Inquiries are ongoing to trace those responsible. Village Care Home confirms coronavirus outbreak. A care home has isolated residents and brought in full PPE as it works to contain an outbreak of coronavirus. Claremont House and Lodge in Caister says a number of residents and staff have tested positive for COVID-19. A statement said, We can confirm that we are currently supporting a number of residents and staff who have tested positive with COVID-19. We are in close contact with Public Health England and local infection teams and we continue to follow stringent safety and infection control procedures. These reflect the latest PHE guidance and include isolation of residents, screening measures, the use of full PPE to help minimise the risk of further infection and regular staff and resident testing. 
We are providing regular updates to residents, family members, and our thoughts remain with everyone who has been impacted by the pandemic at this extremely difficult time. We would like to thank everyone for their continued support, including local health protection teams and GPs for their support and advice, and also our team for showing such care and dedication throughout. The confirmation comes as new figures reveal coronavirus is killing more care home residents in Norfolk than almost anywhere else in the country. Data from the Care Quality Commission shows the virus killed 68 care home residents in the week ending January the 22nd, a record number since the start of the pandemic. Across England, only five other counties had a higher number of care home deaths in the same week. Surrey, Kent, Essex, Hampshire and East Sussex. It is the second week in a row that Norfolk features in the 10 worst hit counties in terms of COVID care home deaths. Claremont House and Lodge is rated as good across all five categories by the Care Quality Commission. Oh, how sad and get well soon, all of you do take great care. Multi-million pound river barrier to protect broads being considered. Construction of a multi-million pound river barrier to protect the broads and Great Yarmouth from flooding is to be explored again. The idea of a barrier on the River Yare was first mooted more than 60 years ago, but has never come to fruition. But the Environment Agency said the merits or otherwise of such a barrier or one on the River Bure would be considered as a new strategy to reduce flood risk and was put together. The Broadland Futures Initiative, BFI, a partnership between organisations such as the Environment Agency, Broads Authority, Councils and Natural England, is looking to devise a new strategy for managing coastal and inland flood risk. It comes amid sea level rises and more extreme weather due to climate change and a barrier which will form part of the discussions. Officers said justification for new flood risk management schemes, including physical structures like barriers, require a rigorous evidence base that demonstrates both that the scheme will be beneficial and feasible, and also that the scheme will not have negative impacts. A flood barrier is just one approach that will be investigated by the BFI. If funded wholly or in part by central government, there are mandatory tests to select the most appropriate flood risk management approach. The new strategy will enable a business case to be produced to press for more investment from the government. The area to be covered by the new strategy includes the full extent of the Broads Authority area and key stretches of the coast, which could influence flooding in the Broads, together with Great Yarmouth. People in these communities are being asked to complete an online survey and visit a virtual exhibition as part of the early stages of the process of putting the strategy together. Mark Johnson, Area Coastal Manager at the Environment Agency said, we want to know what your concerns are relating to the BFI plan area and how you think we should respond to the threat of climate change in the medium to long term. Form a bank with a secret inside for sale at £199,995. So if you've got any spare cash going, step forward. An Edwardian building with an elaborate facade situated in what was Great Yarmouth's banking hub is for sale. The former NatWest Bank at 23 Hawkey Great Yarmouth has a beautiful frontage and a secret inside. Designed by architect Arthur Hewitt, it looks like it has two huge stories from the front. This is a trick of the eye because inside it has one tall banking hall and one room deep space on the upper floors. 
the former bank, built between 1904 and 1906 and situated next to the Star Hotel building, also has a Venetian window inside on large columns. Premises along the quay used to be the home of the five banks, Barclays, NatWest, Lloyds, HSBC and the Royal Bank of Scotland. Some of the buildings are empty, others earmarked for conversion into flats and some are still occupied as offices. It comes as the Hall Quay area was set to be transformed into a restaurant and cafe hub before Covid struck. The building for sale does have lapsed planning permission to be turned into a restaurant and three flats. Bank says branch still open after ominous sign appears. A bank branch has moved to reassure customers after a member of the public posted a bizarre sign outside the building suggesting the store was closed indefinitely. Nationwide has confirmed the closure of its branch in King Street in Great Yarmouth is not indefinite. It was only the Wednesday, January the 27th. A spokesperson said, due to staff sickness and demands of homeschooling, we've had to temporarily close the branch. In the current climate, it's hard to get coverage at such short notice. I will stress the closure is only until Wednesday the 27th while we work through staffing issues. She added that the sign was actually placed outside the building by a member of the public and not the branch manager who visited the site to remove it. We would never put up such an ominous note making people panic like that, she said. I'm not sure if that person was trying to be helpful or what but it definitely wasn't an official sign that people saw. Well, Margaret will be back with more news in a while after Andy has told us about some strange goings-on. Hello, this is Andy with another of the weird Norfolk stories. And this concerns the ghosts of North Walsham. As ghostly goings-on go, North Walsham can boast a host of hauntings. The quiet North Norfolk town has superfluous spectres and spooks considering its size. Perhaps they prefer gliding along the twisty windy roads or being a stone's throw from the sea. Perhaps the town itself is a magnet for those who cannot rest in the afterlife. Whatever the reason, we have an embarrassment of ghosts in North Walsham. There's a ghoul who witnesses have said looks as if he's wearing the devil's roller skates, so fast is he, who flashes by what used to be called the High Walks, which is now close to Scarborough Hill, possibly Yarmouth Road, wearing an old-fashioned cloak which billows in his slipstream. Some say this elevated path was created to protect townspeople from the cloaked and booted skating dandy. Next on the ghastly ghoul list is a phantom who liked company. A newspaper report in the Eastern Daily Press noted that the woman appeared on Long Common Road, no longer in North Walsham, and was so realistic that at first no one questioned whether she was from this world or another. Then one night a party of young men were walking home from North Walsham when one of them realised that a woman of 40 or so was walking with them. She was wearing old-fashioned clothes and as there was almost a full moon they could pick out various details of her appearance, the piece read. The man who had seen her first and nudged his brother said she came out of nowhere and if anyone had offered him a thousand pounds he couldn't have spoken a word. They all saw her. She walked almost the length of the common with them, then disappeared. They were reluctant to mention the lady, because it happened on a Saturday night, and they admitted to having a pint or two. Apparently, the lady played the same trick on several other people, and in the end, she had to be accepted as a regular. 
it seems she does the same thing still. But what is strange is that she did it when the oldest inhabitant's father was a boy. Next is streaking Hannah Whitepost, a ghost who is linked to North Walsham, although further investigation suggests she may actually appear in Whitepost Lane in nearby Hannah, where the common land is known as Hannah's Common. She is a somewhat neurotic, if not permanently hysterical female, said the EDP, and she is seen to cross the road three times in the same direction, and utters three blood-curling shrieks. At the marketplace, a young woman, dressed in ragged clothes, little more than a child, and pitifully thin, with straggly hair, is spotted in dark corners, and in the direction of Hers Hill, a further two ghosts have been seen, one near the site of the old Hag Farm, another on Furs Hill itself. At Hag Log, presumably close to the farm, a woman has been seen. She, it seems, is sweet and wistful, and was involved with murder, although whether victim or otherwise, not even the oldest inhabitant can remember, said the EDP. And on Furs Hill itself, Densely covered in trees and next to an old quarry, the most frightening ghost of all can be seen at the dead of night. A thoroughly nasty piece of work. Not that anyone has ever had a good look at him. He's far too nippy for that. But by Jiminy, his reputation... Second part of the news now, followed very closely by Margaret's look at October 1956. Son's concern as COVID hospital patient, 85, moved seven times in two weeks. The enormous pressure still being placed on staff at a Norfolk hospital has been highlighted by the son of a coronavirus patient who was moved around seven times in the space of two weeks. The man, who does not want to be named while his mother remains in James Paget University Hospital in Galston, said he was shocked at the manner in which the 85-year-old was being moved from ward to ward while suffering from coronavirus. He explained his mother was even at one stage discharged from the JPUH to a Suffolk care home along with another patient, only to be turned around and driven back to Gorston late at night when staff said they had no record of the booking and refused her entry. A spokesperson for the hospital said it had received the family's complaint and was investigating. She said, The JPH is very busy with both COVID and non-COVID patients and staff across the hospital are working incredibly hard to treat our patients and make sure that the COVID-19 vaccine rollout is carried out as quickly as possible. We have seen many more COVID positive patients in the hospital in December and January than we saw at the April peak and our teams have stepped up to the challenges this has presented as well as organising the vaccination of thousands of people in Great Yarmouth and Waveney. Many staff have moved into new roles to support their colleagues and we are grateful to all our staff for their ongoing work. In response, a letter from the hospital to the complainant said they were sorry to hear of his concerns regarding his mother's treatment. The man said, although my mother was admitted with suspected COVID, which the paramedics said was to fast track her through A&E, we called the ambulance in the first place because she couldn't walk without collapsing due to severe pain in her legs. She didn't have coronavirus symptoms before. He added, I'm scared for her health, but I'm honestly more worried about the sheer number of people she's come into contact with during her many transfers. She relies on pain relief medication because she has violent spasms in her legs related to her arthritis, he said. But when she was brought back from Suffolk, she was taken straight to a ward without going through A&E and being re-registered. This meant she didn't receive her medication or a proper meal until late next morning. It's chaotic. Great Yarmouth MP Brandon Lewis said 
it would be inappropriate to comment on this specific case, but that it couldn't be stressed enough how much COVID-19 was stretching NHS resources. He said the JPH and other hospitals are currently under huge pressure. They need all of us to help them by following the rules. I know it's difficult, but this is the only way to bring infection levels down and reduce pressure on the NHS. At the JPUH, the number of COVID patients dropped from 146 on January the 12th to 126 a week later. But despite the fall, the hospital is operating at close to capacity, with 96% of all beds occupied and just 1 in 12 critical care beds currently available. Tower Complex up for sale after owner signs outrageous loan deal. Great Yarmouth's most iconic landmark must be sold after the company behind it signed an outrageous loan agreement that left it financially ruined. Receivers have been appointed to sell the Tower Complex after the company which owns it, Tower Building Limited, saw an emergency loan of £1.1 million spiral into a debt of £3.6 million. The loan was signed in 2019 by directors of Tower Building Limited, Colin and Chantel Abbott, as the company sought emergency funding when a previous investor withdrew. Mrs Abbott, who was removed as a director shortly after the deal was signed, said her understanding was the loan would be paid back within three months while longer-term funding was secured. But it never was, and with interest of up to 15% a month, the debt rocketed to more than three times the initial loan. The building is now being marketed for sale by chartered surveyors Francis Dara with price on application. The advert for the building reads that it is a rare opportunity to get a prime site on Yarmouth's Golden Mile. It states the building is bringing in rent of more than £100,000 a year and part of it has been converted into 18 flats. A loan to the building's owners, Tower Complex Limited, was provided by a company registered at a care home in Deerham called Care Help UK. It loaned £1.1 million in July 2019 on the agreement that the Tower Complex Limited would pay back £1.3 million by October. It had to pay interest of 5% each month. But in October, when the loan was not repaid, an extra 10% interest every month was charged and the debt has now ballooned to £3.6 million and of that around £2.3 million is interest. The loan was secured against the building and it has not been paid back. CareHelp UK has appointed receivers Parker Andrews to sell the complex. Mrs Abbott felt she had no option but to sign the agreement. I thought the rate of interest was outrageous, but I felt if I didn't sign it we would lose the building, she said. It was not meant to go beyond October, and I don't know why it was not paid back. Her former partner, Colin Abbott, declined to comment. CareHelp UK is owned by Norfolk Care Home boss, Dr Sanjay Kushal. It has £100 in assets, according to its accounts, which makes no mention of the loan. The company has not responded to requests for comment. The deal, meanwhile, has also left an original investor in Tower Building Limited facing huge losses. Mrs Abbott's dad, John Necruz, loaned Tower Building Limited £500,000 to help it buy the building in 2014. The loan was secured with a charge on the building, but when the loan with CareHelp UK was taken out, they took priority of the charge meaning when the complex is sold, CareHelp UK will get the money and not Mr Necru's company. 
We thought our money was safe as we had the building to back it up, he said. That's a large chunk of our pension gone. Mr Netcruz signed a document to give CareHelp UK priority on the charge, but said we felt under pressure as we were told that without this loan we stood to lose all our investment. We were given no time to seek professional advice. Now the history of the tower. Built in the 1960s, we can only imagine that the tower complex was once talked about as a beacon of regeneration that would help lure back the fleeing holiday crowds, Liz Copes writes. Just as the Costa Blanca was building high-rise accommodation for sunseekers to jet off to, Yarmouth had its own modern complex, complete with a viewing tower reaching optimistically to the skies. The Golden Mile landmark went up in 1965 on the site of the old Coast Guard station. The ground floor and the first floor opened first and the ballroom following a few months later. A year later, visitors could enjoy an ice rink, but that didn't last long. And after the ground floor variously hosted an amusement arcade and an indoor market. In the 1960s, it was featured on postcards and was presumably considered majestic enough to incite the envy of those back home with its modern straight lines. However, despite numerous remodellings, nothing really ever stuck, leading some to regard it as a white elephant that never quite delivered on its ambitious promise. Many will remember it best for Tiffany's nightclub, a 2,000 capacity venue and a huge draw for miles around. In the 1980s, it was the place to be at the weekend, with numerous appearances by The Real Thing, despite its sticky carpets and toilets that rarely had seats. Oh, how lovely. <laughs> More recently, the Empire Lounge has proved a popular addition to the nightclub scene, but is closed due to coronavirus. It's not true that nobody from Great Yarmouth goes to uni. A school principal has refuted the idea that nobody from Great Yarmouth goes to university after a study found poor white teenagers from coastal towns were one of the least likely groups to consider higher education. Chris Millwood, Director for Fair Access and Participation at the Office for Students, OFS, said coastal towns and former industrial hubs like Great Yarmouth, Nottingham, Barnsley and Sheffield were being left behind. The study comes as MPs investigate low attainment among white working class pupils. In Great Yarmouth, 100% of the constituency's postcodes are classed as low participation areas by the OFS, meaning the borough is underrepresented in terms of the number of local people heading off to university. Geography is a contributor. He said that poor white students in London bucked the trend because of high levels of investment in education there. He added that ethnic minority communities, the majority of which live in London, had also been able to participate in that. But according to Mr Millwood, people in left behind towns feel the decline of local institutions and civic engagement and as a result are less likely to believe that education will improve their life chances. It's not all bad news, however, and according to one sixth form head teacher, it's the opposite of her experience. Catherine Richards, principal at East Norfolk sixth form in Galston said, each time we see statistics about deprivation and attainment, Great Yarmouth pops up but I really don't recognise the picture the OFS is painting. At the East Norfolk College, half of our students go to university, which is the same as the national average. Not only that, but we have examples of white, working class boys from Great Yarmouth who are on free school meals, heading off to Oxford and Cambridge. Last year alone, 70 of our students went off to study at UEA, a fantastic achievement. 
Over the years, we've been building up an extensive list of alumni to draw on from universities all over the world, she continued. They help our current students navigate the process, a lot of whom are among the first generation to consider higher education. A big part of improving attainment alongside good teaching is simply demystifying university as a concept. Sometimes that's the only thing holding people back. In Great Yarmouth, the council is not blind to these issues and has been actively working to turn the borough's fortunes around. Leader Carl Smith said, with the excellent support of local schools and colleges, many young people from our borough do continue their study to higher education. However, we absolutely recognise that deprivation in some areas does bring challenges to people accessing these opportunities and reaching their full potential. Not everyone who has the aspiration to go into university can afford to live away from home and support themselves while studying. But we are actively working with East Coast College and Norfolk County Council to develop aspirations and to establish a learning centre and university campus in the heart of Great Yarmouth Town Centre. Labour councillor Mike Smith-Clare said another issue was Great Yarmouth families relying on seasonal work for income, meaning many students were limited to September start date courses. On their part, East Coast College Principal Stuart Rimmer said the college was working hard to remove the barriers to participation, which many people in the region face. Through our college and sixth form, we see a large amount of talented students go off to university when they finish their studies with us at 18. And through our partnership with the University of Suffolk, we can offer degree courses for students on their doorstep, he said. I'm now off meandering through the past editions of the Great Yarmouth Mercury. So let me take you back to October 1956. And some of the headlines that caught my eye were 84-year-old Mr C. Woodhouse from West Caster grew a cabbage that weighed £30. Good heavens, what do you do with a cabbage? <laughs> £30. It's a lot of bubble and squeak there. First herring landed one week earlier. The arrival of the first herring from the local grounds caused a buzz of excitement at the Great Yarmouth Herring Wharves yesterday, October the 5th. Appropriately, perhaps, the first landing was made by the Fraser Borough motorboat Girl Pat, the first Scottish boat to reach East Anglia this year. She arrived on Tuesday, put to sea Wednesday and was back Thursday morning with 14 crans that made up to £9 per cran. Special trains from the North East on Monday will bring the Scottish Girl Curing Cruise. And talking of fish, the next item naturally follows on. Chips must not be eaten on buses. Not only had Macintoshes been ruined and frocks spoiled as a result of chips being eaten on the buses, but a conductor had split a bone in his spine because a potato chip had been thrown on the staircase of a bus. A councillor asked the corporation should prohibit the eating of fish and chips on buses. Fish and chips were a delectable dish and provided they were supplied under proper conditions they were a good and nourishing food, he said. Oh, can you remember queuing up at the chip stalls on the market and putting salt and vinegar on before they got wrapped in newspaper? Best taste ever. <laughs> I could smell them now. Oh. Now, Gordon Mays opened a new shop in Baker Street, Galston, selling tripe, reed, cow heel and chitterlings to go with your chips. Oh, very tasty, I'm sure. Not... New Methodist Church on Galston Estate. A foundation stone laying ceremony will soon take place at the New Methodist Church on the Magdalen College Estate, costing £23,000 to build and equip and including a schoolroom. 
It's the first free church to be built in the borough for many years. Work started in mid-August and is expected to be finished by the end of next summer. New mobile library costs £5. Yarmouth's popular travelling library, which caters for readers living away from the centre of the town, will not be making its usual rounds next Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. This is because the double-decker bus used as a mobile library is being replaced by another one which the public library has acquired from the Corporation Transport for £5. Shelves and other equipment will be transferred to the new one, which will resume its service on Friday. Food again! <laughs> there was a lovely picture of the director of Matthews, Mr D Matthews, cutting a cake which weighed £110 to celebrate the fifth anniversary of Matthews Restaurant in King Street. Pieces of the cake were given to customers with their afternoon tea. Onlookers included Mr R.H. Rumsey, the chef who made the cake, Mr H.J. Freestone, manager, and Mr R. Teasdale, head waiter. Now I can remember going there and having plates of pastries that included my favourite that were called water lilies. They were cubes of sponge with green marzipan and cream. And talking of Mathies, you could buy their sliced and wrapped loaves of sunshine bread for 11 pence halfpenny. Right now, what were you listening to in 1956? Hound Dog by Elvis Presley, Just Walking in the Rain, Johnny Ray, and oh, this is real class, the Ying Tong song from the Goons. And to end with, I spotted this advert in the personal column and it said, Why feel old? Feel younger with Austrax tonic tablets. Have revitalised thousands past 40. At all chemists, costing two shillings. Right, well ask me off to the chemist to buy all the remaining stocks. Change 
Peter Sellers, Spike Milligan and Harry Seacombe were as much as I could stand of their 1956 Goons hit, The Ying Tong Song, unceremonially replaced with Malice Aforethought by Johnny Ray and his hit, Just Walking in the Rain. I actually only included the Goons as Margaret claims she's never heard it. Margaret, take your head out of that paper bag, it's finished, and... Time for the last part of the news. Convenience store secures alcohol licence amid malicious sabotage fears. A convenience store has been granted a licence to sell alcohol, despite malicious complaints threatening to derail its bid. Variety Food Store 199 on Northcote Street in Great Yarmouth was the subject of a malicious attack, according to owner Vanya Lores. She claimed at a Great Yarmouth Borough Council licensing subcommittee meeting on January the 27th that the 29 objections lodged against her proposal had not come from neighbours, but a business owner scared of competition. It has come to my attention that the business owner nearby had a form on his desk and was asking customers to sign it, which I don't think it's right on his part, she said. The objection letters included what meeting chairman Graham Carpenter referred to as serious and unjustified allegations. All were simply template replicas with different signatures at the bottom. They suggested another off-licence would increase the crime rate, encourage children to make the wrong choices and make the community unsafe for family and the elderly. One template even included the claim that Ms Lores would be selling illegal cigarettes, which she strongly denied. It's so frustrating, it's a malicious attack, she said. People can purchase alcohol anywhere on the street. There's a 24-hour garage a couple of doors down. And if they don't get alcohol from me, there's plenty of other places to get it. There's already three shops and other pubs that sell alcohol on the road. Galston probably has one of the lowest crime rates in the area and has a large number of premises that can sell alcohol. Variety Food Store 199 opened two months ago and Mr Carpenter pointed out that no responsible authorities had objected to Ms Lore's bid to sell alcohol from 7am to 11pm Monday to Saturday and 8am to 9pm on Sundays. He said, many serious allegations have been made in objections, none of which have been justified by the evidence heard today. He added that by installing CCTV and operating a proof of age policy, the applicant had satisfied police conditions and trading standards had raised no concerns. The application is reasonable and the licence is granted without any further conditions, he concluded. Attempts were made to contact competitors for comment, but were not successful. And this is a sad one. 
tributes to teacher, vicar and manager of TV It's a Knockout team. The year 1970 was a special one for Norfolk man Arthur Bowles. He was manager of the team representing Great Yarmouth in that year's TV game show It's a Knockout, which saw contestants from towns across the country compete in observed races and challenges. After two sets of televised games, his squad of teenage boys and girls won the chance to represent England in the European round of the competition. Training was hard and the town was short of sporting facilities in those days. It was a case of making use of the beach and seafront as well as a small private pool for water activities. But these challenges didn't put off Arthur, a passionate and committed man, and the team flew to Berlin for its first international match, making it through to the final, held in the Italian city of Verona. They came fifth overall and earned £300 for the town. Mr Bowles, who taught at the Technical High Stroke Oriel Grammar School in Galston and would later become a vicar, chaplaining at Norwich City Football Club and then Great Yarmouth Town Football Club, died on the 19th of January of a heart attack at the age of 84. He was born in January 1936 in Martham to parents Annie and Leonard and had one sister, Avis Higg. When he was nine years old, the family moved to Great Yarmouth, where Arthur attended Greenacre School then Great Yarmouth Technical High School. He was among the first group of students to take A-levels there. Arthur went straight from school to do national service with the RAF and was offered pilot training, but declined in favour of enrolling at Loughborough University, where he studied PE and maths. Before leaving school, he played for local football clubs, Lowestoft, Galston and Great Yarmouth. He also took part in several games as an amateur for Arsenal, playing at Highbury Stadium, but never signed up as a professional. After graduation, he married his fiancée Margaret and began teaching at his old school, now renamed Oriel Grammar School and housed in a new building in Galston. He and Margaret had two children together, Stephen and Cheryl. While at the school, Arthur managed football and basketball teams and enjoyed working with colleagues who were once his teachers. In 1975, Arthur left his teaching post and attended Reading University for a year to gain a diploma in counselling and education, which led to an appointment in Norwich at a centre for teenagers who had been taken out of school. His final job in education was deputy head teacher at North Dean's Primary. In 1989, he retired from teaching due to osteoarthritis and eventually had both hips and knees replaced. Oh, the bionic man. The following year, he was put forward by Great Yarmouth Football Club rector, the Reverend Michael Woods, for training to become a non-stipendiary priest, a position to assist the paid clergy. After three years, he was priested in Norwich Cathedral and then shared a chaplaincy at Norwich City Football Club with the Reverend Bert Cadmore. Arthur would visit the club training ground every Friday with Bert, talking with players over lunch and attending every home game. He later became chaplain of Great Yarmouth Football Club and spent many happy hours there with the local people he knew. He is survived by his wife, two children, three grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. On its website, Great Yarmouth Football Club said it was devastated. The club said Mr Bowles provided wonderful support to the club in the past six years as a loyal supporter, committee member and so much more to so many. His connection with the club goes so much further and his link with the local area runs deep for so many. This is such a difficult loss to deal with at this awful time. There are few who get talked about with the reverence he holds in the local area, 
and many are hurting with the news today. No more so than the wonderful family he leaves behind, who the club will support in any way in the coming weeks and months. Well, Arthur, another person who we always say, a life well lived. Well, that's it from me for another week. Take care of yourselves. Goodbye and thank you for listening. Well, that's all we have for this edition of Grapevine. The recording is copyright 2021 of the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association. The news content is adapted mainly from the publications of Archant Limited and is used with their consent. However, the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association accept responsibility for editorial decisions made for this recording. Next week's newsreader will be Aileen and we hope that we can look forward to welcoming you once again for our first edition for February with much, much more of your local news. In the meantime, from everybody here at Grapevine, stay well and safe and bye for now. Music